welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like is. And we have a good episode number this time. It is 172. This is number 172. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can feel free to email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com or leave them on the comments section of Podbean, which is where our podcast lives. So, a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, definitely, I, th- I think everybody in the world has heard that they found a stash of cocaine in the White House. Uh, you know, and because, and again, they're not telling the truth. Because why would they tell the truth? We're only the taxpayers. We're only the people who, who they live off of. But it was apparently found in a relatively restricted area in some sort of a phone cubby. And, you know, of course, all the fingers immediately pointed to Hunter Biden. And I honestly think that that's probably the case. I mean, who else could be a suspect? I know that people who work there have to take a polygraph and they're questioned about their drug use. And if anything comes up and they lie about it, well, they get immediately fired. So who could walk around the White House without getting questioned, without having to have a polygraph test for his position? Who could do that except Hunter Biden? And, you know, who's got the record of drug abuse? Well, it's Hunter Biden, who is the slimiest character in the book, Hunter Biden. You know, so obviously, you know, when people are are pointing fingers at him, they're they're actually pretty justified. And some of these sanctimonious people who who are on the in the media saying, well, he's a recovering addict. It's unfair. There's all kinds of people that pass by there. I said, look, you, you people are garbage. You're spewing garbage to try to cover for this guy. Everybody knows who it is. And let me tell you something. They know exactly everyone's whereabouts every minute of every day, every second of every day in the White House. So they know they probably have camera footage of who put the, uh, who put the phone in the cubby and, 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 uh, and their dime bag of... Uh, cocaine in there and uh you know i mean the fact that they're not telling us tells me it's hunter biden because if it was somebody expendable they would have burned him a long time ago and said oh yeah it belonged to you know joe jones and and we've now fired mr jones you know so it's obviously what the answer is but but we'll see maybe they will come forward with something but somehow i don't think so they're just going to wait for this to news cycle away and just say, man, we just can't solve it, you know. It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Well, on, you know, some better things, uh, we did our Pancho Villa match at my gun club. Uh, we, we had done one some years ago at the 100th anniversary of the raid of the town of Columbus by the bandit and revolutionary Pancho Villa. We kind of recreated that again this year, except we uh, we kind of turned it into a three-firearm event with uh, pistol, carbine, and rifles, and a good time was had by all. And, you know, the, the part that I walk away from is we we don't really have a, a heavy-duty scoring system. This isn't Camp Perry where we're shooting at little rings on targets. This is more like shooting... Uh, you know, combat style weapons because we had a fixed sight rule and we had a no polymer pistol rule. So, um, 
you know, it was kind of like old-timey fixed sight weapons at, you know, 15 yards for pistol, 35 for carbine, and 100 for uh, rifle. And the rifle was, was offhand, so it wasn't, wasn't a gimme by any means. Um, it was challenging but fun, um, and everybody seemed to have a very good time, and it was great being with people who enjoy the older firearms. That's what never gets promoted in the drive-by fascisto media that we have now. You know, they'll talk about, oh, somebody with a gun committed this crime or that crime, but they'll never go into the gun culture and say, yeah, here are these 50 people or 40 people or 30 people who were having a great time at a match with, with firearms, using them responsibly and promoting, you know, some reasonably good behavior and values and all these other things. You know, people, uh, it's it just amazing to me that that is never, guns are never credited with that. And that's the 99.9% use of firearms in this country. The, the amount that are used in crime are actually very, very small compared to the total number that are owned and used for, you know, purposes such as I described. So uh, I'm really not too, uh, really not too thrilled about the media. All I can say is support your local gun clubs, hang out with other shooters, introduce new people to shooting. The most important thing you can do, show them show them the uh, the hobby show them all of this stuff our friend of the podcast is a, is a master at that he has he has taken people who are either just neutral or in some cases don't like guns and uh, he has shown them taken them out spent time with them and a lot of those people have gone out you know somebody who didn't really like guns and was kind of opposed to guns goes out and buys a 15 how good is that so the, the brotherhood of the gun, whether it's hunting, whether it's target shooting, uh, whether it's just basic training for people that how to basically use their firearms so they're not afraid of them, whether it's self-defense courses for both men and women, uh, all of that stuff is great and that needs to be brought to the forefront more. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that needs to happen more and start to start to break this information lock that the um, Democrat Party news media axis has uh, has been trying to you know foster on on you know everybody else in the country so that is a good thing ah, another good thing is if you've been noticing if you've been paying attention ammo is cheaper and more available I mean it's not 2019 prices but it's it's coming down and, and you know it's coming down when you all of a sudden you see some offers with free shipping that's always the first discount so when you see the free shipping you know they actually have ammo they want to move and uh, so things are moving in the right direction will they fall much more I don't really know but I know that you know ba- the basic calibers like 9mm and 5.56 are, are more affordable now and you can actually get it uh, in bulk, you know, some bulk packaging, which is nice. So as I tell people, now is the time. Um, everybody wants to wait. Everybody says, oh yeah, it's around. I'll just, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. Then there's a problem and the stuff vanishes 
and then you wind up paying two or three times the price if you can get it um, right now people have ammunition and if you've got a few dollars in your pocket you need to trade you need to buy buy the ammo because time may come when they don't have the ammo or it's ludicrously priced and you're gonna get a lot less for the money in your pocket so now is the time to to buy get that 500 rounds of 9 millimeter that you just keep squirreled away just in case now's that time to get that extra couple of hundred rounds of 556 squirrel it away put it in an ammo can and uh, put it in your stash for the day when things don't look so bright you know when uh, the bad news comes and bad things start happening you will have the wherewithal to defend yourself and your family so anyway now's the time to get it that's the most important thing to know uh, let's see oh, let's talk about left-wing violence you know we haven't been seeing too much um, too much of this but I think they're I think they're waiting I think they're prepping and waiting because they know that there's going to be a problem in 2024. People are wise onto the fact they stole the 2020 election. They're running a corpse. And Biden will be the nominee. The office of the president of an incumbent president is just too powerful for somebody, you know, RFK Jr. is not going to topple Biden. Uh, all the party favors and everything all that apparatus will get mobilized for Biden even if he's you know even worse off than he is now as far as being insensible and and senile and dementia ridden um, he's easier to control that way and they'll want him they won't want an RFK jr. or or some greasy slickster like Gavin Newsom they don't want those guys they want somebody they can control that's why they went with Biden in the first place um, so anyway I think they're waiting for 2024 and I think if the Democrats lose which I hope they will and I honestly believe they will I think there is going to be some serious violence if you thought the summer of love was happening um, that was just their they learned lessons there they learned lessons there and I don't know if they have the wherewithal to execute on the, the, the lessons they learned. But they were, in 2020, they were very well organized. You know, the pallets of frozen bottles of water that they could throw at the police. Pallets of bricks. That just These things just materious, mysteriously, not materiously, mysteriously showed up at the right place at the right time. You know, kind of an unmarked truck drops them off and then, you know, speeds away. Um, this kind of stuff is going to be just par for the course. And we saw with the Georgia thing, remember the police city, the, the training area that they were going to use to train the police? And that's where you kind of saw the last, kind of the last wave of this. You know, they were using a lot of pyrotechnics against the police, you know, and... You know, don't think for a minute that stuff isn't dangerous. That can burn you like crazy. So, you know, they're, they are getting more lethal. Now, they're not using weapons, and I think there may be a strategy there. Well, they, they may have them, 
and they might use them as a last resort, but they don't want to bring it out, start getting in a gunfight with the police where they will eventually get overrun. And, uh, you know, they, they can't, fighting the government with small arms is probably not going to be a winning situation. But these guys are definitely... Uh, they're definitely able to terrorize neighborhoods. They're definitely going to be able to... You know, if you thought the Chaz was anything more than a dry run, that was a proof in concept that they could take over a section of a city, keep the police out, and then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have two options, National Guard or federal troops. And a lot of governors, especially blue state governors, will not exercise those options. So you get people in, you get these little lawless zones uh, cropping up, and who knows? They may not be tiny like the Chaz in Seattle was. These could be a lot bigger and a lot, lot more dangerous. So I would be very, very careful. Uh, something else that's going along with that is like Antifa. I haven't heard or seen from them, but you know they're around. And you know that they're, especially in places like Portland, I think they may be colonizing Portland and the Pacific Northwest. And by colonizing, I mean getting enough members and resources there so they can stage a genuine upheaval. You know, what if they seize a whole city, not just the little Chaz zone they had in, the, uh, had in Seattle? What if they got the majority of, of uh, Portland, Oregon? That would be, then what do you do? Then what do you do? And face it, depending on how they're armed, could, rooting them out could be a real bloodbath. A real bloodbath. So that's a, that's a definite uh, thing to be afraid of. I think that's very possible, and I think it's a definite thing to be afraid of. You know, and there's something else. You know, it, it happened a couple years ago. They, they kind of mentioned it. Have you heard any buzz about the secret Chinese police stations? That The Chinese government is kind of... They send people out and they kind of establish these things in foreign countries. What their exact purpose is, I don't know. I think it's to hunt down dissidents or people who don't like them and hassle them. So calling them a police station is really a misnomer it's really a little terrorist cell and you know i've seen pictures and i don't know how to but i think in places like where is it detroit or minneapolis some of these places you know there actually have been islamic patrols that are kind of like police that is a very disturbing trend that is really weird and i don't know who is kind of behind that is it the obvious or is it something else remember Barack Hussein Obama and you, you can rarely find any kind of a reference to this anymore but in 2006 he gave a speech and I've referenced this before he gave a speech where he talked about there should be a civilian defense force which is just as well armed as the military now he wasn't talking about, you know, arming Boy Scouts and the American Legion and, you know, the VFW and all that. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about arming left-wing radicals so they could resist the power of the state. And 
nothing ever came of it because you know as we all know obama was you know just he he was full of manure i mean that that's that's what this guy is a sack of manure he's full of manure all he was was talk so it was a real no-brainer to take all the frills off the model 10 the nice blued finish and and all the rest of it the nice grips and all that put on some plain walnut grips give it a parkerized finish and voila you have the victory model smith and wesson which was so it was so good that the british wanted it so in one of the you know i understandable but uh still one of the terrible decisions the uh it was rechambered in the British 38200, which was basically identical to the old 38 Smith after World War II. As a matter of fact, the uh, gun that Lee Harvey Oswald used to shoot Officer J.D. Tippett on the same day he assassinated uh, President John F. Kennedy was actually a British return that had had the barrel cut down to two inches by the importer and had been rechambered for 38 Special. Um, and sold very cheaply so you know that's kind of the story with that but that's the th that's the uh, victory model Smith & Wesson excellent guns they were excellent uh, a good medium bore gun the same attributes that made it popular with police and armed citizens for decades and decades so like 80 years um, were served it very well during World War II uh, next question what is a Colt commando revolver uh, that's the same thing. It's the Colt official police, which uh, has been militarized by basically giving it a four-inch barrel and a uh, parkerized finish. Uh, most of those were kept in the United States and issued to plant guards and federal police forces, you know, guarding installations and um, things like that. Very few of them made it overseas. I did read in one place where Dwight D. Eisenhower had one because he liked it, he liked the size, he liked the whole thing, so that was something he kept. Whether how true that is, I, d I don't know, but it seems like he was he was a pretty, you know, he was in he was in his mid fifties at that point, and why he certainly would have been um, familiar with the 1911 and the 1903 Colt automatic pistols. Um, I could see where a Colt revolver would appeal to him. That that. That was probably a, a, just a personal choice. So it's, it was a very good revolver. Uh, the official police is an excellent revolver. It um, After the war, it, it kind of hung in there competing with Smith & Wesson, but it really, um, really didn't. It, I mean, it's kind of the ancestor of the Python in many ways, that Colt lockwork, which has been roundly criticized um, in comparison to the Smith & Wesson. But, you know, those things were still in use uh, up till the end of the revolver era. Uh, they're beautiful, beautiful guns, beautifully made, um, very, very nice. Um, the Colt Commando, of course, is rougher than the official police, but it's still very, very serviceable. And uh, I think military police and all that used used it uh, post-war uh, until they replaced it with other things. You know, they, they kind of, those small use small number weapons kind of you know when they reach the end of their service life or, or whatever they decide to replace them they just get rid of them they usually don't get more of the same they just get something similar which is get the cheapest one they can they even used rugers for a while you know so um that's kind of where that is 
Okay, why do you criticize the conclusions of gun tubers on YouTube? Well, I don't know that I criticize all of them. I, I think my criticisms of them would be that whenever they're reviewing a firearm, they put it into an artificial context that the soldier would have preferred something else that something else would have served them better because of the attributes they've picked out and that's not all wrong but many of these guys and gals have never been in uniform so they don't really know a couple of basic truths especially when you go back to second world war and first world war especially um, a lot of people didn't have especially if you came from cities in the east coast we'll take the united states or you could take cities in europe you know, city dwellers did not have a um, uh, an exposure to firearms. So the firearm you gave them. So if you gave a Frenchman a LaBelle rifle, and it's the first rifle he has ever shot, and you train him with it extensively, um, he's going to do just fine. Even if you train him poorly with it, he's probably going to do just fine. It's very simple. It operates. He can understand it. And he doesn't have a lot of things to compare it to. He doesn't he doesn't go down to the sporting goods store and say, let me see a 93 Mauser. Wow, that's a lot better than this. It just doesn't happen. You're issued what you're issued. And, you know, for the most part, people are happy about it. I mean, I don't recall reading anything where the French were up in arms because they had the LaBelle. You know, uh, they, they just didn't really matter. Um, so... A lot of criticisms they heap on things are purely in the theoretical and not in the practical. And I would say that if you took somebody and gave them a LaBelle, a Berthier, uh, a 1917 Enfield, an SMLE, if you took riflemen of roughly the same, the same uh, training, you know, that, and maybe even unskilled, maybe that's even a better thing. You took just recruits who'd never shot a gun before um you know they're they're not going to be there's not going to be a tremendous difference between them especially when you're throwing 60,000 men against machine guns at the Somme um you know the fact that you can shoot four rounds more per minute or quarter minute with an SMLE isn't going to make that big of a difference um there's just they they tend to get a little too fine with it same thing with the handguns. The handguns were used um, as, you know, basically an emergency backup close range. Um, a 1917 revolver was probably in most hands as good as a uh, um, semi-automatic pistol. I mean, it just it just was. I mean, you know, you can't you can't just say that, that it was better. Now, where you can prove in World War II, going forward a war, you can say that, hey, the Americans having the M1 rifle gave a firepower advantage over the bolt-action armed enemy. And the evidence for that is the fact that Germany went kind of bonkers trying to develop a semi-automatic rifle of their own. You know, and they had a bunch of uh, near misses I think the G43 being about the best and then they of course went a generation ahead with the uh, STG44 
So, you know, you, you could say that, yeah, the, the semi-automatic M1 stacked up against the K98K Mauser, the Arasaka rifle, uh, definitely, definitely outclassed them. But you're talking about a rifle that was basically two generations ahead of its bolt-action peers. So, or its bolt-action competition, I should say. So that's what you're seeing. And... Um, you know, I would uh, I would say that I you know a lot of the things they say and do are just kind of counterintuitive to what the experience of a soldier will be. You know, um, that soldiers make their weapons work because they know their lives depend on them. Even even a, a weapon that has sketchy reliability and my my favorite was the old M60 machine gun. Um, you know everybody made it work and it did so you know i would just say that there were probably better machine guns out there and certainly the m240 is a better machine gun and it replaced the m60 and that's that's part of the reason why but it doesn't mean the m60 was all that inferior when it comes to bolt action rifles you know when you're shooting at combat ranges of 100 yards or so maybe on the outside at 200 yards i'm not sure that all the differences they've discovered on paper make that tremendous of a difference in the field in the hands of troops on the terrain in the weather um, and in all the variable conditions that are out there uh, I'm not sure that they make that big of a difference so that's one of the reasons I I do criticize them um, I realize they got to create content but you know hey that's the way it goes uh, why do you criticize former special operations guys who sell training and gear? Well, because as I look at it, everything they do is designed to make them a profit on their reputation. And a lot of times they're not telling you what they did overseas. They're kind of reselling you the latest giga that they've come up with. Um, and remember those those god awful slings that went all the way around your body and everything, and allowed you to drop the rifle and it would kind of hang at a forty five degree angle across the front of your body. I mean, and getting in and out of those things is like getting into out of a straitjacket, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they were selling all that kind of stuff, stuff that they never used. Now maybe they thought it would have been nice to have. They'll tell you that, but I, I don't think it's stuff that they ever would have used. The other thing they're doing is they're selling a lot of three gun kind of ideas, competition gun ideas as, hey, this is the coolest tactical thing going, you know, the 45 degree sights and some of this other stuff. Um, I, I say you have to really look askance at all that. And I'm not even keeping up with it. I'm, I'm probably probably behind on it because um, I don't know what these guys are selling anymore. All I can tell you is it's designed to make them money. And making them money is something they want. So um, that's why I'm very, very, you know, when a guy when a guy basically is selling you something on the basis of his resume, watch out <laughs> because it is that is designed to separate you from your hard-earned cash. Um, you know, it's. I'm not saying all training is bad. I'm not saying all gear is bad. But there's some gear that uh, I, I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, 
just simply because it may work out great in class but is it something you're going to actually actually use is it, is it actually beneficial to you or is it something that's going to get tied up and is a pain in the butt and you know everything else so you know I don't need to spend 10 hours installing and working on some goofball sling that I'm not really going to use I mean you know the it's also the environment you're in you know um, a lot of guys want all that tier one operator equipment because it makes them feel cool but if you're not doing tier one operator things um, unless you just like spending money I would uh, be very careful with what you what you get because sometimes simpler reliable and easier to use equipment is the better choice for average people like you and me because I consider myself an average person I mean I don't there's no magic potion out there that's going to make you this secret ninja warrior so uh, be very careful with all that okay here's another question what is your opinion of the Beretta 1934 pistol um, I don't know that my opinion is very important but the Beretta 1934 um, it kind of looks like the modern Beretta M9 only it's way smaller and it's in 380 and it's single stack and it came out in believably enough 1934 um, they're excellent pistols our friend of the podcast has one I've got one oh, actually I think I have two yeah I have two um, but they're beautiful pistols they, they function very well the safety is a little wonky on it um, it's a 380 so you know you're dealing with 380 um, I have not tried mine with any kind of high performance 380 ammo I'm sure it could handle the pressure simply because it's all steel so it's gonna be strong enough I think as I'm thinking about it um, you know it's a very good it's a very good little gun um, is it something you should use I mean if you have one you you should make if you have one it will serve you reasonably well I would not go out and and just go buy one to say this is some kind of secret cool ahead of its time defensive firearm that was made in World War II it's really not the cool part about them is if you get the uh, and they made them after the war but if you get the wartime ones or the I guess it's pre 43 yeah pre 43 or 44 whenever the fascist regime in, in Italy collapsed whenever the production collapsed um, it'll have a Roman numeral on there like XV which means it was made in the 15th year of fascist rule so you add 15 to 1923 and you would get 1938 you know so that's kind of a cool uh, for a collector that's a very kind of a very cool aspect of those those firearms and uh, they got reasonably good sights and uh, their business I mean they're all business they uh, um, they're there I think they made a Beretta 1935 which is in 25 ACP which no I wouldn't I wouldn't really go for that but in 380 you know 380 is 380 and it's up to you whether or not you want to use that but the Beretta 1934 is good to go a great collectible uh, a lot of fun Germans use them um, oh, who are the other people who use them um, the Romanians they sold a bunch to the Romanians because I've got one that's marked in in the Romanian terminology so 
um, yeah they're very cool very nice guns um, something that you can really um, you could really use it today if you wanted to but it's a fun fun collectible oh while people are asking me about opinions here's another one what is your opinion of the sour 38h world war ii german pistol again it's it's like the 1934 it's very cool it's um, a 32 caliber pistol 32 acp so it's a little on the light side it's all steel it's a great collectible the um, the most interesting fact i know about it is they were very very popular with the german paratroops but you find them marked german with the german army waffenamt or the police and i think the police ones are a lot more scarce so i would um you know i would definitely bone up on your waffenamps uh, when you buy one if you're looking at one they do have a, an ingenious way that the hammer drops kind of cool um you know it's a, it's a cool little gun it's a very cool gun uh, another another piece of trivia that was going to be the preferred gun of James Bond back in the you know 60s when they were making like Dr. No and Goldfinger um, they didn't use it for because it was because it was cool because it was a very cool looking gun and it, you know it's a beautiful looking gun and it's got that interesting feature the reason they didn't go with it was they didn't want Britain's best secret agent to be using a quote Nazi quote unquote gun because it was never produced after the war it's really strictly a wartime military guns so um, the Walther was a much better because the Walther was back in business then and everything else I don't know if Walther paid him any money to do that they probably should have <laughs> but uh, anyway the Walther was a much better fit so that that is why James Bond used a Walther instead of a uh, a 38H so th another little fact about uh, an interesting weapon Okay, here's another question. Uh, what is your opinion of the 5070 government cartridge? And why was it replaced by the 4570 government cartridge? I'll, I'll answer the second one first. Um, basically long range. 5070 has got a trajectory about like a softball. Um, at first, the, the, the evolution was at the end of the Civil War. Okay, they've got scads of rifled muskets good guns but you know the era of the breech loader was here the era of self-contained cartridges was here so muzzle loading rifled muskets um, weren't worth very much but they couldn't afford to scrap all these things they couldn't afford to scrap them at all so what they did was they said we'll take these and they figured out they had several different ways and the way that a Springfield Armory employee named Allen came up with, they did the Allen conversion, which created what we know of as the trapdoor system. Um, and they did it for, because they didn't want to rebarrel these things, obviously, they did it with a 58 caliber black powder cartridge. Okay? Um, I don't have to tell you that that was like super crappy and it just didn't work very well. Um, that being said, I'd give my eye teeth to have one of the uh, early guns that was chambered in it. I've actually seen them. I've never fired one, but I've actually held them and seen them. Uh, anyway, they're very cool, but they, they said, look, this is just not giving us the performance we're looking for. So they said, if we reduce it to 50 caliber, 
uh, will probably ballistically get something a lot better. And they did. And it, and it improved. And they, at the same time, they, um, um, they had the Sharps carbines that they converted from percussion to 5070. So it was pretty good. They had all these things. Um, unfortunately, they didn't really perform that much better. They performed better, but not so much better that it gave them the uh, edge they were looking for. So after experimentation, they came up with 4570 and another reduction in caliber. You know, it's kind of weird. You go from the Civil War to the 3040 Crag, and you just see the calibers getting smaller as technology improves. So, and and actually, 4570 was criticized because they said, "Hey, this this is a reduction in caliber. I don't know if this is a really good idea." Turns out, it's it was a great idea because um, it had really good long-range performance. <clears throat> I understand because I've not tested it myself. But it had better long-range performance, like thousand-yard performance, than did the uh, British Martini Henry, which was notionally a more powerful cartridge. So there you go. Um, it it hit that thing of power. It hit that happy medium of power and accuracy. Um, the Army saved a lot of money. They even used some of the old locks. But you know, more importantly, when they were manufacturing new rifles, um, a lot of the machinery they had, they were able to. Um, recycle you know they think the locks weren't that much different for the trapdoor than they were for the rifled muskets so you know it was very easy to convert their existing machinery over they didn't have to pay anybody for the patent or the idea because they owned it um, and in a very frugal time for government um, it, it seemed to work out pretty well so that's why the the trapdoor was there and that's why 5070 um, just ballistically gave way now i will tell you i think in carbines i would rather have a 5070 than a 4570 and you know because bigger is bigger is better um so i think uh you know that's the that's the uh, kind of thing there um the 58 caliber one the earlier one that was kind of on par with what you would get with a Snyder um, conversion of an 1854 Enfield. You know, and the British and Canadians especially stuck with that for years and years and years. And it worked out fine. Um, you know, it worked out fine. If you're in Canada, I guess you could shoot bears with it. You know, it's, it work out, work out okay. So 5070 government lasted until until about 1900 um there were you could you could go buy you could go into the hardware store and buy 5070 ammunition and i think through the 1890s that probably just declined so that by about 1900 it was gone and people just weren't shooting it anymore whereas they were still shooting the 4570 um because the winchester had come out in 1886 had come out in it there were all kinds of um, you know, uh, other single shots that, that could be uh, chambered in it. So it really eclipsed it. But the 5070 did kind of hang around uh, for a while. And I, I personally think it's a very cool cartridge. I, If I have to use a cavalry carbine of that era, I'd much rather have 5070 than 4570. And as far as I know, I think they did some Sharps Buffalo rifles in 5070.
but as far as I know, uh, they never did a lever action in it. I know they, they did some other lever action. Some, there were some uh, 50 caliber Winchester cartridges, or at least one of them, but I don't think it was ever a 50-70. I don't think, I don't think the rim on the cartridge would, you know, be very, uh, I don't think it was strong enough or big enough to, to really uh, work well in a lever action rifle. So that's it. But happily, brass is still available today, and so are molds, um, so you can actually do your own. So they're actually very, very good. Uh, next question, another old-timey cartridge. Have you ever used a 30 Luger? And the answer is yes, I have. Um, they're very cool, very nice guns. The 30 Luger came out to before the 9mm. So it's kind of the parent cartridge of the 9mm Parabellum, the 30 Parabellum or 7.65 Parabellum. Uh, that was the first successful cartridge for the Luger. Um, in fact, it was so successful, they sold a lot of them here in the United States. You'll, you'll hear of uh, Eagle Lugers, uh, American Eagle Lugers. They have an American Eagle in the chamber. I've seen some. I've never fired one of those. Um, they also have that funny dished toggle, you know, that it doesn't look quite like the other ones, the later ones. Um, actually, the U.S. Army bought, I think, I'm going to say a thousand of them and used them for troop trials around 1903, 1904, something like that. And they came back very positive. Uh, the only thing that was not positive was the caliber was considered small. And you got to remember the U.S. Army at the time was now pretty, pretty uh, skeptical on small calibers because of the failure of the 38 Colt in the the perceived failure of the 38 Colt in the Philippines. Um, they said, "Look, we we need a powerful cartridge." They were in the process of doing the Thompson LaGuardia test, um, which basically said you want 45 caliber. So. While the Luger was, you know, a pretty good, pretty good pistol, and the troops liked it, and it was easy to maintain. It was military grade, but the caliber was just never going to cut it. So, you know, they, I think they, uh, I think they wound up selling them off surplus at some point. Just kind of got rid of them. You can buy reproduction holsters, Luger holsters for a four-inch barrel Luger that say U.S. on them that are kind of the. Uh, I imagine they're a reproduction of the same holsters that were issued with the uh, test Lugers. Now, the, the only time the Luger ever came back... Now, you got to remember, right after this, the German army adopts the Luger in 9mm. And, of course, the uh, the manufacturing capacity is, is going crazy because the, uh, the Germans are going to arm their army, their navy... And everybody who needs a handgun with a nine millimeter Luger, so uh, Luger wasn't particularly, um, you know, crazy about the U.S. market. Uh, they came and they kind of gave it a half, a half effort for the uh, 1911 trials. You know, they had a 45 caliber Luger, um, an interesting, interesting gun, but it was never going to go anywhere. And the, the the test was fraught with problems with the ammunition and and specifications and all this other nonsense and the Germans basically withdrew because they knew they could sell all the nine millimeter ones that they could make so why do it what's interesting is at the time is the United States and Germany were not enemies or belligerent countries they, they didn't dislike each other 
There was no Cold War type of deal. There was nothing. It was just Germany was just another country in Europe. Um, did not become anti-German until after kind of the Lusitania is sunk and, you know, the Zimmerman Telegraph and all those things. We were not predisposed to go to war with Germany in the early 1900s. Uh, we would have been very happy had the Luger filled the bill to probably buy Lugers for the U.S. Army. You know, the specter of the U.S. Army chasing Pancho Villa into Mexico in 1916 with 45 caliber Lugers um, could have been a possibility. Could have been a possibility. But it was, it was all for naught. It was just not going to happen. Um, the 30 Luger, though, kind of remained popular in the United States. Um, you know, in the 20s, 1920s, that is, um, they were a popular import item, you know. Getting a Luger from Germany meant you were probably going to get it in 30 Luger, which was not really considered a military caliber because of all that Versailles Treaty nonsense. So, um, you know, there was a market. You could go into the, in the larger cities, you could go into the the uh, retailers that sold high-end kind of pistols and firearms and you could buy a Luger off the shelf so uh, very interesting that with the um, number of war capture Lugers that came back at the end of World War One Luger was not a rare pistol in the United States by any means um, it, even up through the 1960s it was a you know I don't want to say common but there were a lot of Lugers around it was really in the 60s and in the, especially in the 70s they started vanishing into collections and uh, you don't see them much out, out around anymore but um, you know the Lugers started vanishing and uh, they, they wound up in the collections but up until that time it was not unknown and the Luger was a very no, well-known pistol because of its use by Germany in two world wars and because of its distinctive looks uh, use in the, um, you know, television and movies and, and everything else. Uh, it was very well known. Very, very well known. Well, that is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And as usual, if you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com or leave them in the comment section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.